When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 68, titled How New York Became the Big Apple, wherein three tales are told, but only one is true. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. Bob, as the host of a podcast about language, there are certain questions I've noticed that come up again and again. I've been asked, for example, on a number of occasions by a number of different people, including most recently by your very charming wife, Milena, at my son's birthday party. She asked, why, oh, why, or maybe she said, why, oh, why, do we call New York City the Big Apple? We know from our conversations with Ben Zimmer that we humans, we speakers of language, are are very prone to concocting what are called folk etymologies, false etymologies, tales that sound very sexy, that seem very plausible, but don't hold up to scrutiny. There are no less than about a million such tall tales regarding the Big Apple, but only one short one. Wait, is that a thing? Short tales? I don't know. (laughs) I don't think short tales to anyone means a a true story. (laughs) I mean, I I see how you derived it, but Mike, you're, um, what do you call it? Stupid. (laughs) Okay. Well, there's only one that is most probably true. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And as we've discovered with Ben, sometimes the folk etymologies are far more satisfying and, and logical than the true provenance of certain uh, words and phrases. So, uh, you know, you can see how it happens. We, you know, we, we all of us want an orderly universe. We want questions answered. And whether we come up with gods or, I don't know, space aliens or explanations for the derivation of the word gringo, we're just not all that particular about whether they're, you know, true Mm. I was with you up until space aliens. You know they walk among us, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been to the Slate office. (laughs) Okay, so I should say that almost everything we know about the name the Big Apple, both the reality and the various myths, is the result of some very thorough sleuthing by a couple of etymologists in particular. Their names are Gerald Cohen and Barry Popick, and we have them to thank for digging up so much 
of this great information. And in fact, Barry Popick has a website, barrypopick.com, that has etymological information about thousands of words and phrases. So what I'm going to do, Bob, is spin for you three brief tales about the birth of the Big Apple, and you have to decide which one is true. Mm -hmm. And so as not to prejudice your thinking, I will tell them to you in the chronological order in which they more or less begin. So here we go. Tale number one, the true story of the Big Apple, or is it, begins in the very early 1800s. So at the turn of the 18th century, in the year, say, 1800, a very significant historical event had just occurred. Any guesses? Near the year 1800? Yes. The Great Migration from uh, Ireland into North America. The French Revolution. Yes, exactly. And so in the late 1790s and the early 1800s, many of the French aristocracy and the royal sympathizers and the military officers, people generally in charge, they were fleeing the country, right, lest they find themselves suddenly headless because the guillotine was getting a lot of action at that time. And some of them fled to America. Some of them fled to New York City. And so I'll quote for you now a paragraph from the Society for New York City History. One of the aristocrats arriving in late 1803 or early 1804 was Mademoiselle Evelyn Claudine de Saint-Evremonde, daughter of a noted courtier, wit, and literateur, and herself a favorite of Marie Antoinette. Evelyn was by all accounts remarkably attractive beautiful, vivacious, and well-educated, and she was soon a society favorite. For reasons never disclosed, however, a planned marriage the following year to John Hamilton, a son of the late Alexander Hamilton, was called off at the last minute. Now here's where it gets good. Soon after, with support from several highly placed admirers, she established a salon, in fact, a brothel, in a substantial house that still stands at 42 Bond Street, then one of the city's most exclusive residential districts. Now, Evelyn, or Eve, as she came to be called, as a kind of cheeky nod to another famous Eve, mm -hmm. began calling the, the women apple. she employed, quote, my irresistible apples. Now, Throughout the 1800s, the term apple became a kind of generalized slang for prostitute. And you see it popping up in a number of places, most notably in an 1870 guide to New York City's brothels. It was called, somewhat discreetly, the Gentleman's Directory of New York City. And it wrote, quote, in freshness, sweetness, beauty and firmness to the touch. <laughs> it, it really ran with this metaphor. And firmness to the touch, New York's apples are superior to any in the new world or indeed the old. <laughs> That's a precursor to pizza advertising in New York. Some, somehow everyone right. is, is the world's best. <laughs> yeah, or coffee. Everyone's got the best cup of coffee. <laughs> so the point being, of course, that New York City was now famous for its, quote, apples. And as such, it took on a bunch of nicknames, including the apple tree, the real apple, and eventually the big apple, which is the one that really stuck. And it became popular enough that it shed its disreputable past. French apples. You're going to try to palm that off on me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good one. Yeah. yeah. I like it. 
Okay, let's proceed. Okay, so now that can't possibly be true, right? Because the actual origin of the Big Apple begins a little bit later in the 1800s during the American Civil War, which is when our next tale takes place. A few years ago, a woman named A.L. Du Bois wrote a book called The Big Apples of New York. This book is about apples, it's about New York, and it's about the, the shared history of apples and the state of New York. Early on in the book, Du Bois addresses the question of the origin of the name The Big Apple. Quote, One hears in detective stories the expression, follow the money to solve a mystery. In this case, I think it should be follow the Afro-American. The answers lie with the history of these people and how it was intertwined with New York and the apple. Uh Uh, Before we proceed, (laughs) when was this written? (laughs) Just a few years ago. 2012, 2013, I believe. 2012, (laughs) Afro-American. Her... uh... Her language is a little dated, yes, and there's a little yes. murkiness to her uh, thinking, but okay, let's hear it. Uh, the orchard industry of New York State. Right. So let's stipulate that there is a number of things in those sentences that is unfortunately worded. But if we can, let's put aside the awkward expression Afro-American. And let's follow the Afro-American <laughs> like, like a uh, proprietor on 42nd Street through the store. <laughs> yes, let's put aside the very creepy metaphor of following the Afro-American, right? Nobody likes to be followed. <laughs> Nobody likes to be followed. <laughs> let's also put aside the phrase, the history of these people, as though we're talking about, <laughs> you know, some, some ancient humanoid civilization in a nearby galaxy. And may I just say to... All of the African-Americans among our listeners and really all of our listeners, uh, I want to apologize on behalf of all all tone-deaf, well-meaning but utterly tone-deaf white Americans. I just couldn't be – I couldn't be sorrier. And please accept my apologies. Sometimes local historians are not the most elegant of writers. But let's, again, put all that aside and focus instead – on what Du Bois is alluding to here, which is the actual origin of this phrase. Because in the 1800s, before the Civil War, many runaway slaves would come up north seeking not only refuge, but also actual employment in, for example, New York's apple industry. And so Du Bois says, quote, as a result, the many mostly illiterate slaves came up with the slang expression, the big apple, that very early on was used by them as code to secretly describe New York when they were in the South discussing among themselves escape plans. Let's make quick work of this one. I don't know what the third one you're going to present me with is, but that's not going to make the cut. I'm <laughs> sure there would have been ample evidence in, uh, you know, contemporaneous journalism, if that were such an expression, and she makes no reference to it. So I, I just, uh, I'm extremely skeptical. As a white fro-American, I am just, uh, I'm dubious. As a Jew-American? <laughs> yes, as a Jew-American. Uh, no dice. Okay, so that can't possibly be true because something else we know from our conversations with Ben Zimmer is that every colorful expression in the English language has its origin in either boxing or horse racing, right? <laughs> That's been our experience so far. We're only in episode 60, whatever, six, but... Uh, <laughs> 
So far, it has been an extremely pugilistic and maritime-themed enterprise, this uh, word tracing stuff. Yeah, and you might say that horse racing also has a very good track record. Aha! 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 I see what you did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So in the early 1920s, a man named John J. Fitzgerald was a reporter for a newspaper called the New York Morning Telegraph. Fitzgerald covered a number of things, including horse racing. And one day in 1920, he was down in New Orleans at a racetrack and overheard a conversation between a couple of African-American stable hands, which he later recounted in the newspaper. Where y'all going from here? queried one. From here, we're heading for the Big Apple, proudly replied the other. Well, you'd better fatten up them skinners or all you'll get from the apple will be the core, was the quick rejoinder. So Fitzgerald heard one of the stable hands say, from here, we're heading for the Big Apple. Now, let's back up a second. In the early decades of the 1900s, when horses were still very much a part of the everyday life and the hustle and bustle of big cities before they were replaced, of course, by cars, in those years, it was common knowledge that horses love apples. And the apple... And in particular, the big apple or the big red apple was held to be a kind of metaphorical prize or reward. So how did this get associated with New York? Well, those stable hands were using the big apple to refer to New York's racing circuit because that's where the big prize money was, right, relative to other racing circuits in other parts of the country. And Fitzgerald, being a very observant reporter, picked up this phrase and began using it and even titled several of his horse racing columns around the Big Apple. One of those columns begins, The Big Apple, the dream of every lad that ever threw a leg over a thoroughbred and the goal of all horsemen. There's only one Big Apple, that's New York. So you see that the Big Apple, New York's horse racing scene, became by extension New York itself. So there you have it, Bob. Three very different stories about the Big Apple, only one of which checks out. Yeah, well, I wasn't much impressed with the story about the whorehouse. I don't even believe the backstory. I don't even believe that this aristocratic French woman was running a bordello. There's no part of the story that makes any sense to me, except that Alexander Hamilton had a son who I didn't know about, and I'm willing to buy that. So it stinks from fish, that one. And since we've already discounted the second story on the grounds of there being no, presumably no historical documentation for the term Big Apple in the, what existed even then, a a black press, I will have to say the last one makes eminent sense because it is documented in the headlines of the columns of this Fitzgerald character. So I'm going to default to the only one that's plausible. Number three. Okay, so let us return to Mademoiselle Evelyn St. Evremond and her irresistible apples, which, juicy tale though it may be, you're totally right, Bob, it is entirely a hoax. The Society for New York City History appears to have been a real organization run by real people who wrote real books about New York's history, even. And it's not clear to me who among them devised this hoax. But according to the etymologist Barry Popick, someone from that organization, which I think no longer even exists, but someone admitted to him that it was a joke. 
Unfortunately, however, it's a joke that has been picked up by a number of outlets and is still circulating out there. A lie goes clear around the world before the truth even gets on its pants. Yes. You can still find it right now if you go to a website called funtrivia.com, which has that story as the origin of the Big Apple. (laughs) By the way, here's some fun trivia about Uh funtrivia.com. It has a Holocaust category. (laughs) That that does sound like some fun trivia. Oh, my God. Were we speaking earlier of tone deafness? (laughs) Oh, my God. I couldn't resist. I clicked on the Holocaust category, and my first question was about what English speakers call Kristallnacht. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, that is fun. Fun. I had so much fun. So much fun that I couldn't even stand to click on another (laughs) trivia question. Oh, my God. Okay, moving on. As for the secret slave codes, Barry Popick has searched many of the historical black newspapers that you alluded to, Bob, and other sources, newspapers that are from the mid-1800s, And he says, quote, there is not one piece of documentary evidence that Apple or Big Apple was ever used as a slave code in the Underground Railroad. Boom. Boom. That's what I'm talking about. He points out something else really interesting, which is that standalone expressions that use big in this way, in this adjectival way, like big time, big house, big cheese, big league, those are all 20th century coinages. So it would be unusual for the Big Apple to appear as early as the mid-1800s. But again, that doesn't stop this tale from being repeated. Oh, you know what? I think I saw it on (laughs) funbirthdefects.com. Right. (laughs) So back in 2006, somebody asked on the website Yahoo Answers, why is New York called the Big Apple? And one of the answers was... It's an old code word from the days of slavery. That's what I was told on the circle line. Wait wait a second. The circle line? The, the tourist boats that yeah. go down the Hudson and up the East River? Right. The circle line Circling is Manhattan. a boat tour around Manhattan. The circle line, America's favorite boat ride. Discover Manhattan, the most fantastic island in the world. Relax so even tour guides... Hours. Within the last decade, on the circle line are reportedly repeating a very fabricated version of etymological history. It's not even clear where this slave code story comes from. The circle line. Call 212-563-3200. Well, which uh, by my arithmetic leaves us with but one correct answer. Number three, the exchange overheard in a paddock and uh, memorialized in print. Yes, which leaves us with horse racing in the 1920s. And in fact, in the 1930s, the phrase became very popular in jazz circles, just like with the term heebie-jeebies. There was a club in Harlem called the Big Apple. There were songs. There was a dance craze. And what's interesting is that through the middle of the 20th century, the Big Apple nickname had more or less fallen out of use, until the early 1970s when a guy named Charles Gillette, who was, he was president of the New York Convention and Visitors Bureau, he revived the phrase as part of a very famous publicity campaign for the city. And 
here, Bob, is the ultimate full circle of folk etymologizing. As if down the Hudson and up the East River, along the Harlem River, and and round and round. Yes, she goes. this is the circle line of folk etymologizing. Gillette died in 1995, and there was an obituary in the New York Times. The obituary credited Gillette, rightly so, with, quote, turning the term Big Apple into a tourist draw. The obituary then went on to say that, quote, Damon Runyon, the writer and journalist, Damon Runyon had popularized the term in the 1920s. Now, there's only one problem with that, says Barry Popick, and I think you could guess what that problem is. I'm going to, this is just a, a shot in the dark, right? Damon Runyon didn't popularize that phrase. <laughs> there is no evidence 1920s. that Damon Runyon ever used the phrase the Big Apple to refer to New York or anything else. Where that obituary writer, and this is how folk etymologies get started, where that obituary writer likely got that information is from a 1975 New York Times article by William Sapphire in which he referred to the phrase the Big Apple as Runyon-esque. Mm-hmm. It is, although he might have more accurately said Fitzgerald-esque. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you're going to dip into the New York City columnist category, you may as well <laughs> not just pick the church but the right pew. Yes. Only William Sapphire didn't know the real story of the Big Apple at that time. Nobody really did. In fact, Gillette himself when asked by a colleague, and we know this because that colleague sent a letter recounting this story to Barry Popick, when Gillette was asked by this colleague, why the Big Apple? Like, what's, what's that about? Gillette, who was a jazz fan, cited its use in jazz circles, which is true, only that occurred in the 1930s after we have documentary proof of it appearing in Fitzgerald's columns. Although, as Popick points out, we still don't know the identity of those stable hands, and those are uh-huh. the people we really but, should be crediting. Talk about coming full circle. You got to give it to Ms. Du Bois, yes. whoever she is. Follow the Afro-American. She was so right and yet so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can email us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. At Lexicon Valley is our Twitter feed. Please follow us and subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. Many, many thanks again to Barry Popick and Gerald Cohen. Joel Meyer is no longer our managing producer. Good luck to you, Joel. He is off to the Windy City, another great municipal nickname. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yep, Bobby. We are done. Later, Gator. Put them all together. What have you got? The big apple. The big apple. The big apple. The big apple. Well, my, my. Yes, yes. My, my.